you're not going to resolve somebody's perspective on the world or the way that they see life both biologically and because of the way that they grew up in 30, 60, 90, 120 days, you're fighting large forces that have formed who this person is. I see people over and over who I, I say to myself, oh my God, you've adapted in some of the only ways that allowed you to make it out of this hellhole that you started at. And the fact that you're even here right now is a pretty huge success. Welcome to the Ignited Recovery Podcast, a new way forward for anyone looking for answers but feeling left out. If you've been searching for empowerment, triumph, and purpose, you've found them right here. You won't hear the same solutions and you're not going to have any excuses to fall back on because Ignited Recovery allows heroes to rise and become their best selves. I'm Dr. Adi Jaffe and I can't wait to be your guide on this journey. Are you ready to become an Ignited Hero? All right, everybody, welcome back to the conversation part of today's podcast. Uh, I'm here with Maya Salovitz, an author in the space of addiction who's been writing for decades on this topic. So, you know, Maya's books and her thinking are some of the things that I read early on when I even got exposed to the idea that harm reduction was a thing back when I Maya first found out about you and Stanton Peel and Andrew Tatarsky and all these people uh, who paved the road. So welcome, first of all. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we've connected a whole slew of times in the past. And one of the topics that we've really connected on over and over and over is this idea of abstinence only versus harm reduction as a concept even in addiction language and addiction uh, in the in the conversation around addiction. So your latest book, Undoing Drugs, is primarily about this, about the harm addiction cuts up. So why don't you walk people through maybe what got you writing this book and what the point of writing this specific book about harm reduction was for you? Sure. So um, harm reduction is basically the idea in drug policy that we should focus on stopping people from getting hurt rather than stopping them from getting high. And so this grew originally in the AIDS crisis. Um, and the book documents some of the people who brought this idea to the world um, in the drug space, basically. And I mean, obviously, you could go back to Hippocrates for ideas about reducing harm. But in the drugs field, traditionally, the idea has been the way to reduce harm is just stop people using drugs. And that is never going to happen. Um, certainly, there's plenty of people who will quit, um, but there has never been a drug-free society. And frankly, harm reduction says, and I believe that most people care more whether there's harm going on um, as opposed to, oh my God, someone's getting unearned euphoria. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> you know, I don't really care. It's not my business. Um, if I'm the government, it's really not my business. What my business is, if I'm going to be concerned about you, is are you getting hurt or are you hurting other people? If not, right. like I should have, I mean, I might like you as a friend or whatever the whole thing may be, but um, as a policymaker, um, I have no interest in dealing with it because there is no problem. Well, I want to stop you right there because there's a couple of things you already mentioned that I think I think they sound natural to us, Maya, but I don't think they're that natural to a lot of people having this conversation. So 
Um, you said that the idea is to reduce harm, but that a lot of people have connected reducing harm with stopping to use drugs. So let's start there, right? I mean, I know you know I wrote this book called The Abstinence Myth, and this this was a central theme to that book. So I want to start there, and then we can we can move to the other piece, sure. uh, which is should we even care that people are using drugs? Um, but this idea that if people are using drugs and they have problems with them, that the most direct route to stopping the problems is to stop the drugs. I think it is the standard way of understanding addiction in the minds of the vast majority of people who've ever dealt with it. And, and I have a question for you, you know, in the abstinence myth, I talk about two ways that that comes up. First of all, people have, are made to commit to quitting if we're going to offer them help. Right. And the second piece is that once somebody starts getting help in whatever way they do, the way we measure how they're doing is by measuring how long they've been abstinent. So those are right. two different ways that seem yeah, ridiculous to me. Yeah, it is ridiculous because what we should care about is how is this person doing? Are they alive, first of all? What's mm. their quality of life? Um, are they able to connect with people and, and have meaningful work? And that's what we care about for ourselves. So why shouldn't that be what we care about for people who use drugs? Oof. We have had this idea, and one of the reasons I called my book Undoing Drugs, that there are these things called drugs um, and they don't include alcohol or tobacco or caffeine um, and they're bad. Um, and or, 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 or until recently, Oxycontin or Vicodin or Percocet. Right, but right. let me finish. Um, so the, um, the, you know, the, the idea is that um, these substances are the problem and that if we just take away the substance, we will fix everything. Um, and that people are causing this problem for themselves because they're just too hedonistic. Now, the reality is that most drug use um, is not addiction and is not harmful. And we recognize this when we, you know, sell alcohol all over the place, although there's plenty of harmful alcohol use. Um, so, you know, undoing drugs means trying to recognize that the concept is problematic. When you are saying LSD is the same as alcohol, is the same as heroin, um, that is really not true. Two of those things are way more addictive than the other one, um, but that other one can also have harms, but sure. they're very different harms. You're not gonna overdose on it, but um, some people may have some pretty severe psychiatric reactions to it. So um, on the other hand, it may be useful in the treatment of certain psychiatric conditions. So yeah, I mean, but a really good example of the problem with seeing the drug as the problem is our horrible response to the way uh, the opioid crisis, as it is called, um, has occurred. Because basically, we thought, oh my God, these doctors are overprescribing. Um, they're not doing it for any reason. They're just overprescribing because like, they want to make money. And then, and because the drug companies told them to, and then, okay, well, we'll just cut it off. Okay. So 2011, we have cut the medical opioid supply in half. We have more than doubled the overdose death rate. We have harmed millions of people in chronic pain by taking away medication that was actually working for them. And we've pushed some of them to suicide or to overdose. 
and why we ever thought that, well, you just take away the substance. Nobody's, you know, that'll cure the addiction right there. Nobody's going to go looking on the street. They're just going to like, I mean, it was the stupidest policy ever. And we could see going in that this was a terrible idea. Mm. You know, you could have, you know, let's say you want to bust a pill mill. Okay, great. You have a list of all the patients. Do something for them. We never do this. Um, you know, and it's like, and then we're surprised when there's like gangsters like outside mm. ready to provide for them when we don't, you know, no other doctor will see them because, oh, the last guy who prescribed for you like got arrested. Um, so, you know, it's it's a very ridiculous way of looking at things like drugs are tools just like anything else and people use them for, for various things. Now, mm. just like if you use the wrong tool in, I don't know, carpentry, it's not going to work very well or it could actually make things worse. Um, similarly, um, you know, uh, substance use can end up doing harm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you were trying to treat depression, um, there are better, safer drugs for most people, although actually for some people, opioids do work to treat depression. Um, but leaving that aside for the moment, um, compulsive drug use, despite negative consequences, is not a good way to treat your depression. And compulsive drug use, despite negative consequences, is the definition of addiction. Yeah. Oof. Um, again, so much. And I knew we'd have so much because your knowledge of this is so deep. But, you you know, you talked about the relative addictive potential of different drugs and how they are obviously not classified based on that. And their medical use or alcohol would be somewhere... So alcohol will be scheduled somewhere, um, given the fact yes. that up until the recent fentanyl epidemic, um, it was killing more people, far more people than opioids. Right? I think it actually still does. Yeah, but it's it, they're getting close at least. Whereas I remember yeah, when I started writing I think writing alcohol about, is 200,000 a year and um, what, what, uh, opioids are around 100. Yeah. So I, I remember when I started writing about this, like in 2008, and the numbers were... Comp- you know, it was like 140 dying from alcohol and like 20 from opioids. And I said, why is everybody paying attention to opioids? Well, opioids have caught up a bit, but. Yeah. Um, well, and also to be fair, um, alcohol tends, not always, but tends to kill people older. Yeah, older and oftentimes still in combination, which is another whole thing we can get into. But, yeah, you know, so again, a ton of stuff to talk about. But one of the things you said, you know, and again, Absent Smith book in some of your past work talk about this already, but let's start measuring how people are doing in their life, let alone in recovery, using the same ways we measure how we're doing in life. And by I'm, I'm pointing at myself, but I used to be addicted to meth. So some people would say that's not the way I should measure how I'm doing with life either. But the idea that if you've got friends and family, if you're doing something meaningful that pays your mortgage and your uh, and your food, and if you're kind of happy about some of the stuff that's happening in your life and you're struggling in some other ways, but it's getting better all the time, right? And your health is managed or getting better and you're working on it. Like if, if that's going on, then your recovery is going well. Yeah. Even if you haven't abstained, you're just reducing, or even if you haven't reduced, yeah. you're still keeping it. So that's number one. And I think that's really, really big. You talked about how all drugs can be abused. And this um this is the thing that I think so I, you know, my background is actually in behavioral neuroscience and psychology. Like when I was at UCLA getting my PhD, I thought I was gonna go study the genetic markers and the receptors and the super detailed biological underpinnings of addiction. Because the NIDA model was really heavily pushed 
when I was at UCLA. So I didn't even know these other areas of research existed, if I'm honest. And it took me my own work and finding Stanton, finding you, finding a lot of other people to, to go look in other areas. And it is also true, though, that the drugs can cause dependence and other issues related to the biochemistry of them. And And you talked about alcohol. And I always find this pretty amazing that nobody knows this. And I think if we map this out, the exact same thing will happen for opioids. You know, over 90% of alcohol sales are limited to about 5 to 10% of alcohol users, drinkers. And the reason I, I think that's an important thing for us to talk about is you were saying most alcohol use doesn't result in harm. And that's because the vast majority of people actually don't really drink all that much. So they drink here and there, whatever. And then there's this small group of people that ends up overusing. Now, unfortunately, historically, the narrative, and I want to hear how you talk about this in your drug, because I know you talk about marginalized groups and things of that nature. Um, the narrative, and this is the dumb, we're all individuals who can pick ourselves up by the bootstrap, by our bootstrap kind of American narrative, is that, well, those 5 to 10% of people who just can't handle alcohol like the rest of us can, they're dumb or unmotivated or in some other ways defective and that's why their addiction is taking over their lives. We should just kind of do away with them because they don't really matter. And I think that's why the us versus them narrative, the, well, we're normal people over here, but they're addicts and alcoholics and we'll put them in the other box makes sense for a lot of people, right? Alcohol is a very well um, incorporated and understood and accepted part of everyday American life. Yeah. Uh, when I... 70% of people who come to Ignite it come to us for alcohol, and they will tell you this over and over. The biggest problem about stopping alcohol is not stopping alcohol. It's the fact that everywhere else in life, alcohol is an accepted part of things. So you feel like you can't go to social events. You get offered it at weddings, business meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's changing a tiny bit with the sober curious movement, but not really. Yeah. You know, and other substances are coming in to replace it anyway. So- how do you see that group? How do you see the five to 10% group that does seem to develop problems with drugs and alcohol that is different than that common narrative, which is there's something broken in them? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say all is well, <laughs> but I would say that generally the problem is something that happened in their life long before they ever picked up a drug or uh, alcohol or another drug. And so, um, you know, generally people with addiction um, have outlying temperaments and these can be very, very different from each other. Somebody might be really anxious or somebody might be really impulsive or somebody might be really bold or somebody might be really shy, but it's all like outlined, like you feel different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is genetic, like our temperaments are just different from day one. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, different temperaments suit you to doing different things, but they can increase your risk for addiction. Um, so the other big piece is child trauma and adverse childhood experience. Um, we know that the more and the longer it lasts for, the more adverse experience you have, the higher your risk. Um, and then the third element is sort of economic despair and feeling like there's no future. Um, and so there's virtually no one with addiction that doesn't have one of those three factors. Um, and typically they often, um, they have two out of three or all three. And so um, this is 
why it's really complicated because if you just assume, well, everybody's taking drugs because they're bad, we can just break them down, create a new personality for them, and then that will solve the problem. Mm. The problem is that that does not work because people are taking drugs for reasons that make sense to them. And they may end up doing it in a very unhealthy way. But in some instances, you know, those drugs allow them to survive a very messed up situation. And, you know, our psychiatric treatment in this country, our mental health system is just awful. Um, and it's not surprising that people try to self-medicate in varied ways. Um, it's so much easier to like call your dealer than it is to like get your insurance to like approve your, um, you know, whatever's. So, um, you know, it, it, it's just not surprising. And mm. we have this idea that like, oh, like people with addiction are uniquely, you know, weak or something like this, but all of us use drugs. Mm. Most of us are physically dependent on caffeine for one. Um, like you get a headache cause you didn't have your morning coffee. Right. Um, that is like something like 50% of the adult population. Um, you know, probably 80% drink at least sometimes, um, you know, um, people are always, um, you know, lots of people smoke weed. Um, there are many, many substances that we use, um, in the course of a typical I'm, day. I mean, sugar, yeah. these things like, right. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, and it's just like, so, but it, you know, people like sort of have this thing where the substance goes in your body and the substance is changing you. And the reality is that like, that doesn't happen unless, um, these other things are going on. Yeah. Because, you know, if, um, if we'd all be completely hooked on our phones and we'd all be unable to like put them down if it were as mechanistic as the way some people describe addiction as being, sure. um, you know, uh, you look at these things, oh, look, they're trying to hook you with this intermittent reinforcement and these gambling things and whatever. Well, 1% of the population has a gambling problem. We have gambling things everywhere. Yeah. Um, there's something different about that 1%. I am mm. not saying bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I and the thing, and the, and the factors you mentioned, so you mentioned biology and we, you know, here's the thing where all these things mix and that's why it's so hard for people to, to get a clear understanding, right? Genetics are the blueprint, but then there's epigenetics, which is the way that your biology interacts with your experience and your environment. So you talked about trauma, temperament, and economics, or, you know, somebody's yeah. environment that they grew up in and those things all interact. And yeah. the reason, and I love that you put them so succinctly together, of course, but you can put somebody in rehab for 30 days and do really amazing things with them. You can go to groups for six months or a year. You're We're battling against this confluence of factors, some of which for these people go back 20, 30, 40 years. And as a lot of groundbreaking trauma work has shown now and the work on social determinants and socioeconomic status and all that stuff that has been there for decades and decades and decades, you know, you're not going to resolve somebody's perspective on the world or the way that they see life both biologically and because of the way that they grew up in 30, 60, 90, 120 yeah. days, you're fighting large forces that have formed who this person is. And I we call our program the hero program, by the way, because as you mentioned, I see people over and over who I, I say to myself, oh my God, you've adapted in 
some of the only ways that allowed you to make it out of this hellhole that you started at. And the fact that you're even here right now is a pretty huge success. So looking at them as damaged is negating all the incredible work they had to do to even survive sometimes. No, no, I think I think that's true. Um, on the other hand, looking at people as completely, totally fine who just experienced a drug and, you know, then became a zombie is also problematic. So you have to like, you have to like look at both sides of that coin, I think. Yeah, 100%. What's up, everybody? I wanted to come to you with a really amazing announcement to support you this January, if you're doing dry January or not, as a reset after the new year. With all the holidays and everything that goes on, a lot of people find that they really want to change their relationship to alcohol at the beginning of the year. So we are going to run one of our incredibly popular seven-day sober experiments. It's going to start January 9th, so I'm giving you the first week of January to kind of reset. January 9th on Monday, we're going to start. It's going to last a whole week. This is one of our community's absolute favorite, favorite activities. We're going to do it live, all of us together. You're going to get lessons and exercises, live groups every single day to support you. Obviously, if you are a hero member, there are going to be incredible additional perks for you. Join us. All you got to do is click the link below or just go to ignited.com forward slash events and check out all the incredible things we're doing in addition even to this seven day sober experiment. Again, that's ignted.com forward slash events. Come get free support in the beginning of your new year. Start this year off right. Now, knowing you and knowing the work that you've done in writing this book, a lot of what you do always is proposing some alternative ways for us to move forward, right? Because pointing out the problem is one thing, talking about potential ways to pull us out of it is something different. So with all everything you've done and everything, you know, again, decades of looking at this problem from 15 different angles, what are, if, if you had to kind of succinctly talk about, I, I don't want to give you a number because I want to leave it up to you, but if you had to give us a, a short list of here are the things we need to do to move forward to change the way this presents, helping both society and the people who are struggling, what are your top recommendations? I mean, so this is fundamentally, the idea is do harm reduction, which is focus on harm. Don't focus on trying to stop people from using substances. Um, and when you take that perspective, you suddenly have to look at the harm we're doing by trying to stop people from using, um, locking them up, um, all the gangsters in the market. Um, all of these things are harms that come from our policy. And if you continue having bad policies that's continuing to do harm, um, you know, you can sort of clean up a little bit at the end, but it is a lot better to um, stop hurting people in the first place. <laughs> and so, you know, so um, I would argue that our policy needs to be fundamentally based on harm reduction. I mean, I'm very glad to see that the Biden administration has embraced at least parts of the idea. Um, but if you really take that idea on, you can't criminalize possession at the very least. Um, nobody has a good argument for locking people up for drug possession. Even people who support doing that now say, well, we should do that so we can get them into treatment. 
What they don't understand about that is that that isn't what happens when people get arrested. Jail is a terrible place to mm. treat people. And if we really believe addiction is a medical problem, why aren't we arresting you know, diabetics for eating donuts? Like <laughs> if this is such a fabulous way of, um, you know, uh, dealing with health problems. Of course, it's not. It's stupid. Um, so, you know, and if, you know, the whole thing of the drug war is use harsh consequences to send the right message. And the whole thing of harm reduction is that, no, if we want people to do better, we have to treat them better. And we have to behave empathetically, understand why they're doing what they're doing and give them the resources to do better or allow them to be able to get the resources to do better. So, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's kind of very silly, but it's just like, how about being nice to people before you're cruel to them? How about attracting people into getting help before you try to coerce them? Um, you know, we have these ridiculous things where it's like, well, you know, okay, there's like homeless people with mental illness on our streets. So like, let's like force them into treatment. We'll get the cops to put them in the hospital and the hospitals will put them in treatment. Well, first of all, we have no beds for them. <laughs> so you're forcing them into non-existent treatment. Um, second of all, when all of your treatment is based on coercion, um, you get really lousy, cruel, uh, carceral kinds of treatment. Mm. And so, you know, because it's kind of basic capitalism. If you don't have to attract your customers and your customer is really the police, um, it's not the person who's coming to you with a problem, it's the government, um, then they don't have to care about the patients at all. It's just like, and, and the outcomes are not, you know, if, if a patient who's coerced into treatment fails treatment, uh, they the go to jail, not the counselor. It's not the counselor who's going to jail because like the treatment didn't work. Um, so, you know, if we actually make um, addiction, if we actually take harm reduction on board, this means re-overhauling the entire treatment system to make it customer friendly and mm -hmm. to make it so that it is easier to call your counselor than it is to get your dealer on the phone <laughs> or whatever, you know, at least almost as easy, you know, yeah. um, also dealers often make you wait. So, um, the, uh, uh, you know, but anyway, but yeah, like the, the fundamental things is get the criminal justice system out of this form of healthcare. And that means get the D eliminate the DEA. The DEA should not have any control over medicine. That means addiction medicine. That means pain medicine. Like that should all be on the FDA. Yeah. Um, there is absolutely no reason to have cops determining, oh, your dose is too high. Like they don't know what they're talking about. And I'm not medical professional. Yeah. And it's just like, why should they have any, you know, I mean, the thing is like, okay, let us, argue that the DEA had prevented this opioid crisis by not allowing the medical supply to double. Um, maybe then we could have a talk about them being a useful agency. Mm. They, even the supply that they literally have 100% control of, they couldn't deal with. So why are we expecting them to deal with a supply that they have zero control? Of? You know, it's just, it's not, this is not the way to do this. Yeah. Um, now, there are all manner of complexities when we're talking about um, regulating um, currently illegal drugs. 
Um, like you really don't want, you know, Philip Morris fentanyl ads on every corner. Um, this would not be a very good way of, you know, um, I believe that our current system of prohibition is like the worst possible, but mm. the second worst would be a completely commercialized free for all. Um, you know, and a lot of people are worried about that with marijuana. I'm a little less worried about that with marijuana than I am for other substances, simply because it is so much less harmful than the things that it might substitute for. Sure. Um, I mean, I still don't think commercialization is good, but this is what we've decided to do. But I think, you know, I'm actually writing right now for the Times about um, the um, Controlled Substances Act and how dumb it is, like, and how it really needs to be overhauled to actually make sense of things because it's just not the case that for all of human history going forward the only recreational drugs humans are ever going to do are alcohol tobacco and caffeine that's just not what's going to happen so we can either choose to have gangsters introduce new products with no testing or we can figure out ways of getting safer um ways to people and this is complicated and difficult and i do not yeah. want to see pharma marketing here's the latest lifestyle hi guys you know the, that that would be bad too um but it would be better than having gangsters overrun certain countries um, it would be better than locking people up um but it still would be terrible so what you really want to do is have um think of ways of dealing with the substances that exist do computer modeling of markets um, understand what substitutes and what complements, um, figure out precisely um, this, the harms that we're worried about with this substance and how to mitigate them. And so this is like not like easy stuff. It's no. not like you say, okay, we'll just legalize tomorrow and fix everything. That's ridiculous. Um, but certainly the place to start is decriminalizing possession because we know that does harm and does no good. Yeah. So, you know, I like that you point out that this this is a complex question. And, you know, if we're honest, we don't like complexity, right? We always want to distill things down to yes, no, two categories. If you have to make it three, then that's fine. I'll take three categories. So maybe like totally normal, struggling and full on alcoholic addict, like it's in people's heads, they just it yeah, makes yeah. it hard to have nuance, which is actually part of the reason why this conversation has always been so difficult is because I think people want to make it simple. So in the past, it's been like, well, like you said, well, alcohol, nicotine, et cetera. I see, I see people do them and I know that they're fine because I use them and they're not that big a deal. So those are okay, but not if you drink too much, then you're in this other category called alcoholic. And let me tell you how much too much is, right? Let's figure that out. So that's, but all the other drugs that the government has scheduled if you touch any of those, then you obviously are a drug addict and you have a problem and you're a criminal and you're going to go to jail. So people really, really try to oversimplify every equation. Um, I do wonder what market forces will do as, as we go along. I try to look at it in the following way, right? Like we've known on for a long time that burning coal hurts our environment, that uh, polluting, that throwing random fucking garbage in, sorry, listeners, if you are with a child, I, I will, I should put a warning. If you, uh, if you just throw your garbage out the window of the car that you drive at, our world is going to be a nightmare moving yeah. forward. But we haven't outlined, we haven't outlawed 
food containers and bottles for that. We've created penalties for doing the wrong Not thing. Not all that well. We really need uh, to do better on that. But yes. I know. But we've <laughs> we've done we've done what we can to control the way people then dispose of or interact right. with those things post-consumption. And I see something similar with the drug piece. I think it's ridiculous in some way that the government has decided that its job is to intervene with what I put in my body anyway. Yeah. Right. That's that's a that's an interesting discussion to have. But the way that it's been circumvented and you talk about possession is it's actually not illegal to use drugs. It's just illegal right. to have them or to sell them. So that's the way they've gotten around that question. But in reality, it gets back to controlling what people do. What's up, everybody? So glad that you've tuned in here today. You know, we bring you these recovery episodes to help anyone who's struggling with addiction or habits that don't serve them break free of the cycle using the latest research and the most effective strategies that I've found over my years of doing this and thousands of people I've helped. Obviously, we offer this free resource to you because I know that getting help is hard and I want to make it as easy as possible. So even if you never join our online hero program, or come to our retreats or come and work with me individually, I want you to at least have access to the same powerful tools that have changed thousands of lives. If you like this and think it's useful, please give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or just wherever you're listening to this right now. It really helps get the word out about this free resource, which is important since my goal is to help over a million people. So thanks a lot for being part of the Ignited community. Now let's get you back to the help. You talked about this. I never even got to it, but I, I'll just mention it. It was the second point you brought up at the beginning that I wanted to get to, which was, should our goal even be to get people to stop using stuff? Or should it be for government and whatever agencies we decide within it are responsible here and have, and have a role to help make people's lives better and support people in their actual choices? And I don't think most people would even know right off the bat what their answer would be on that, right? Because we go back to puritanical um, values that are espoused in so many aspects of what America is. And even though, you know, 50 to 60% of Americans use mind-altering substances, and I'm not talking about nicotine and caffeine, I'm talking, and not even alcohol, I'm talking about the other drugs, right? When you include cannabis in it and include all of them. So even though most people use something, if you ask them outright, they would say, oh, no, dr you know, drugs are bad for you and people shouldn't use drugs. So we're going to have to resolve. It's almost like the sex conversation, but that's very different. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll, we, we're going to have to resolve these inner value conflicts that we have as people and as a society. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I heard in your solution is we have to put some actual thought into these answers and not just throw the baby out with the bathwater or you know, decide that some black or white version of this uh, will end up creating the final um, true answer that can be useful in this situation. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, I also think that um, when you're talking about like the question of abstinence, this really has to be an individual decision because there's definitely people that find that, for example, it's a heck of a lot easier to not drink at all than it is to moderate. Um, you know, it's just a pain in the butt to moderate for some people because you have to be constantly, okay, is now can I have one or now can I have one or, you know, um, you just, it's, it takes more work than simply, okay, I'm never going to do it because you have to make more decisions and that makes more, you know, work for your brain. Sure. Um, that doesn't I say that to people all the time, by the way. Right. So but right. I mean, but that, it's just like the reality, like it's, you know, 
if it's worth it to you and if you can, if it's not a real pain in the butt to moderate, then great. But if it's just like taking up massive amounts of mental energy, it may just be easier to abstain. And so the, um, you know, that's not a moral judgment. That's just like about like, I'm going to like minimize the things that I have to obsess about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was hoping, but we're probably not going to actually solve this problem on this specific podcast episode. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Always love your insight on, on these issues they are complex. Um, I've never found a, a way to really make them simple, unfortunately, which, you know, would be would be easier for people to swallow. Uh, you said you're uh, working on the Times right now. Where can people find your work? Obviously, the book is available on Amazon stores and all that other stuff. And so the book was Undoing Drugs. And what's your what's coming up for you now? What are you working on that you're excited about right now? Sure. So I am a contributing opinion writer for the Times now. Um, which I'm really excited about, and that just got renewed. So I am, I'm, I'm really trying to work hard on that so that I, obviously it has a huge audience and, uh, you know, yeah. reaches influential people. So I'm just trying to, you know, make my writing as persuasive and good as possible um, for that. Um, and um, at some point, I shall start on my next book. But right now, just mainly doing that, and you know, sort of various other freelance work and um, speaking. Love it, love it, love it. Where are you speaking in the near future? Um, it's interesting because like I don't have stuff till like the spring. Mm. Um, it was like I had the craziest November and October. I was literally, let's see, let's see if I can remember this. I went to San Juan, Puerto Rico, Memphis, LA, New Haven, um, Denver, and I'm leaving somewhere out. Um, but like, it was just like A one thing after another. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, it was just constantly, um, I don't understand why that happened that way, but I guess it was partially because like a lot of stuff hadn't happened in person for a long time. Um, but, um, you know, and hopefully it won't sort of clump up like that again. <laughs> again yeah. That's um, a lot of travel. Yeah. That, that was just like, whoa. Um, but, um, you know, for the most part, um, I usually do like one or two a month and it just sort of varies on, you know, what, um, what comes in. I'm, I'm speaking, um, online to some people in, uh, Vermont, I think either this week or next week. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Awesome. Well, we'll put any, um, any links to anything that you're doing in the near future and obviously a link to the book. Um, yeah. And you could also just put my, my main website is just mayasz.com. So it's M-A-I-A-S-Z.com. And that's where um, uh, you will find um, all my writing, which can be scattered in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much. You know, at Ignited, what we're trying to do is really reduce a lot of those barriers. So you talked about not having beds and not giving people access and things being expensive or or hard to get to. Um, and then most of them still being dogmatic and, you know, abstinence-based or not even about the abstinence-based, but puritanical and and shaming and stigmatizing and our job is really to try to open that conversation up so i love that that's some of the what you talked about as being a solution i have no impact on policy so i can't do anything about that at all <laughs> um but you know we try to work with what happens when people get to the other side we're doing some really cool work with drug treatment courts and dwi courts and oh, i've wow. actually been incredibly impressed you find the right judge 
and they are actually very invested in getting the people in their court better access because there's waiting lists and transportation issues and all this stuff. You know, you get a DUI and you, anybody listening can shame anyone who got a DUI all you want, but some of them, okay, they screwed up. They want to get on with their lives, but now they have no transportations. They got to get to these meetings. They have, they have real limitations on access. The right judge, I've seen it over and over. They mm -hmm. just want to get people easy access to almost like, be able to support the people who really want uh, help while being able to screen out the people who haven't. So I think there are really good players in this space. We just have to find more of them and uh, and make those voices loud. So thank you for being one of those voices, Maya. Thank you for your um, recent book and being here with us today. Everybody, please go check out Maya's incredible books. Um, this is number what for you? Eight. This is, damn, I'm on number two. And <laughs> I have no idea how that's going to happen. So thank you so much for all that amazing work. Thank you for being on here today. And uh, everybody, go check her stuff out. We'll see you soon. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to share with you the next two in-person retreats that Ignited is offering. If you followed Sophie and I at all, you saw how absolutely incredible our Tulum retreat, the Up Level Your Life retreat was. Well, we've got two coming right down here in Southern California. The first one is the men's retreat. It's going to take place February 8th to 12th, and it's going to happen in Temecula, California, just a couple of hours away from LA and San Diego. It is going to be magical. It's the third year in a row we've done this. It is pure magic. This happens right before Valentine's Day on purpose in order to help people show up as their best to what's happening for them and for their partner in their relationship. What does that mean? That means they can radically accept, they can have transparency, they can have preparation goals and strategy on how to transform themselves and their relationship into the next best version of them. And this year, for the first time ever, our highly anticipated women's retreat happening at the exact same time in Southern California, February 8th through 12th. So if you're in a partnership, you can come in separately to each of those retreats and have literally one of the most incredible Valentines you have ever experienced in your life. After the last two men's retreats, I got emails from women from wives whose husbands went to retreat saying, I don't know what you all did over there, but I've never seen my husband like this. If you want that kind of response this year for the two of you, come right now. Now, normally when we talk about this, we get some questions. So the first one is, do I have to be in a relationship to come to an Ignited retreat? First of all, no, you don't have to be in a relationship to attend either one of them. We're definitely going to have some elements of the program around relationship. Guess what? You are in multiple relationships in your lives right now with yourself and with other people around you. This is going to help all of those not just romantic relationship. Another big question we get is what's the difference between this retreat and that up level your life retreat we just saw you all having in Tulum? Well, these two are, first of all, they're gender specific. So it's the first time we're splitting up our community in this way, but we've been having the men's retreat. There are some things that are just easier to talk about sometime in limited, smaller groups that are more specific. You know, about two thirds were women at the up level your life retreat. And so this split will do a lot. It's going to help increase radical transparency and openness. It's going to empower people to be the best version of themselves and be transparent and it's going to allow you to hone in on the masculine and feminine to allow for massive transformation and if you know anything about polarity really reach this valentine's day in maximum polarity plus if you're in a relationship you guys will get discounts for joining together contact us more for more details all you got to do is go to ignited.com forward slash events that's ignt.com forward slash events to learn more and save your spot. Again, we have early bird pricing and a six month payment plan. And if you come as a couple, you will get a further discount on both of these. Cannot wait to see you. If you had massive FOMO around Tulum, do not let that happen to you again.
Thank you for tuning in to the Ignited Heroes Recovery Podcast. I really hope you found the information here useful and that we'll see you back here next week. And look, I want to make sure that this podcast is the most useful it can be for you. So please let me know by emailing info at ignited.com if there are any specific topics or questions you'd like to have addressed. As usual, if you like this episode, I would love for you to leave us a five-star review and rating. Thanks and see you next week.